You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. Welcome to part two of my story on Dickie Morrow Tate's attempt to be the first woman to pilot a plane around the world. Now, if you haven't listened to part one yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to that first. If you recall, she took off from London on August 18th of 1948 leaving her husband Norman behind to care for their daughter Anna. The flight was anticipated to last for six weeks, but along her way Dickie and her navigator, that's Michael Townsend, they encountered many delays due to both mechanical and weather-related problems. Then, on November 22nd of 1948, she crashed the plane just outside of Tanna across Alaska. And that's where we'll pick up the remainder of the story. At first, Dickie said she would abandon her plan to complete the flight, but she soon changed her mind. Dickie stated, quote, Personally, I would love to go back home, but I will not abandon the flight under any circumstances. My biggest problem is obtaining finances, not securing the parts for my plane. She estimated the cost to repair the plane would be around $2,000. That's about $21,500 today, and it was money that she did not have. Now, a trucker in Fairbanks offered to crate up the plane and ship it down to Edmonton for repairs, but it would take some time to be dismantled and to haul it down there. In the meantime, on November 27th, that's five days after she crashed the plane, Dickie and Townsend were flown aboard an American B-17 bomber down to Edmonton. Shortly after that, Townsend decided to return to England to complete his studies at Cambridge University. Dickey told reporters, quote, When Michael leaves me, I'll have to get another navigator or go on alone, but I definitely will fly home. It wouldn't be until January 24th of 1949 that her wrecked plane would finally arrive in Edmonton. The damage, unfortunately, was far worse than she had anticipated. Dickey stated, quote, I was shocked when I inspected the plane. A repair shop there estimated the cost of repair to be $3,800, which is nearly $41,000 today. That's nearly double of what she had initially estimated. Being nearly penniless at this point, Dickey couldn't figure out a way to earn that much money. 
Since the time of the crash, she had earned small sums working in an Alaska nightclub, doing some public speaking, and even modeling. And that was something she did before she had married. But sadly, none of these jobs could earn enough to pay for the repair of her plane. She had no choice but to abandon the plane in Edmonton. Now, this does not mean that Dickie had given up on her dream to fly around the world. Quote, I am scouring the continent in an effort to find a company which will give me a plane to fly back to England for advertising purposes. In mid-February, she hitchhiked back up to Alaska to raise some additional funds. Unfortunately, along the way, someone stole all the money she had managed to accumulate up until that point. And to make matters worse, U.S. immigration officials there denied her readmission into Alaska. But ultimately, they did grant her a two-week stay. In early March, she headed for Seattle, Washington, where, on March 21st, it was announced that with the help of a Seattle dentist and others, a replacement plane had been located. It was a surplus army BT-13 Vulti Valiant, which had been sold off at the end of World War II. While the cost for the plane was $600, which is about $6,500 today, the catch was that since it was formerly a U.S. military plane, it could only be owned by a U.S. citizen and piloted by an American license holder. Those technicalities, of course, could be easily overcome, but the real problem for Dickey was raising the $600. That was a lot of dough back then. It was in Seattle that she also found her new navigator. He was a guy named Jack Ellis, a native Londoner and a former Royal Air Force navigator. Ellis saw this opportunity as an inexpensive way to go back to England and see his wife. He said, quote, it's a flight I want to finish. I want to go back to England for a visit. By the end of March, Dickie had raised the money needed to purchase the plane. Surprisingly, two different Vancouver residents offered her $300 each. In addition, a Victoria couple sent in a check for $50 to the Vancouver Sun. Quote, I am very grateful to Vancouver people. I couldn't have done it without them. She added, I have my American license. I shall start my familiarization flights at Boeing Field Friday. In mid-April, Dickie paid the $600 for a plane that she could never own. She named it Next Thursday's Child. Shortly after that transaction was completed, she flew the plane on April 16, 1949 to Edmonton, and that was so technicians could remove the extra fuel tank from her scrap plane and install it in her new machine. Two days later, she took off from Edmonton and headed right back to Alaska. She then circled over the spot where she had crashed, and she began her journey back to England. Now, I'd love to tell you that everything went smoothly after this, but that was not to be. Unfortunately, the airplane's fuel tanks were leaking, so she was forced to make that trip up to Alaska in small hops of two to three hours each. Eight days later, she was right back in Edmonton to have the fuel tanks repaired. That would ground her there for the next 25 days. Finally, at 9 a.m. on Thursday, May 19, 1949, that's nearly six months after she crashed the plane in Alaska, Dickie and her navigator Jack Ellis were cleared for takeoff. 
after crossing the border into the U.S. and clearing customs in Cutbank, Montana, they made a short layover in Williston, North Dakota, before taking off from Minneapolis, Minnesota. This time, everything seemed to be going smoothly. Well, that was until she landed at the Wold Chamberlain Field in Minneapolis. And as a little side note, that's the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport today. On Saturday, May 21st, custom inspectors there ordered her plane grounded, quote, until further orders. Stout chains and a padlock were placed onto the airplane. And initially, agents there said they had no idea why the order had been issued. Basically, it had come from above. Dickey later learned that the papers that had been filled out back in Cutbank, Montana, were not in order. She said, quote, There are lots of rules and regulations that have to be complied with. This will be straightened out. Well, it turns out that federal regulations at the time forbid the taking of an American airplane outside of the United States for a period longer than six months. After being delayed for two days, Dickey was able to post guarantees that the plane would be returned and it was released into her possession. She resumed her flight on Tuesday, May 24th. She didn't get far. Two days later, on May 26th, her plane was once again impounded in Chicago. This time, the Civil Aeronautics Administration claimed that Dickey's registration for the airplane had been improperly completed. It indicated that she was the owner, which of course was forbidden because she wasn't a U.S. citizen. Also, they refused to issue a certificate of airworthiness because they deemed the extra fuel tank as being unsafe. This would prove to be quite the predicament because not only was their plane grounded, but they were running low on fuel and Dickie didn't even have enough money to pay for her meals, never mind buy fuel for the plane. Could this be the end of their round-the-world flight? Just what would she do next? Well, the world would get to know the answer in the early morning hours of May 28th of 1949. That's when Dickie and Jack Ellis snuck out to the hangar where the plane was being stored, hopped aboard, and basically Dickie stuck her middle finger up at the entire situation, and they took off for who knows where. Dickie had previously stated that her next stop would be Buffalo, New York, but many thought that she would hop over the border into Canada to avoid any legal consequences for this action. Charles Biggs, who's an inspector for the Civil Aeronautics Administration, stated that she, quote, has created an international incident and is in violation of four rules. She soon landed the plane in Toronto, but Canadian authorities ordered her to go right back to the United States. She stated, quote, they weren't very interested in me. They told me I better get back to the United States in my plane. But instead of going back to Chicago, Dickie instead headed for her original planned destination of Buffalo. There, she was informed by the Civil Aeronautics Administration, the CAA, that she needed to meet five different requirements before they would allow her to continue with her flight. First, she needed to sell her plane back to the Seattle resident who sold it to her, and that was so it could be registered in the name of a U.S. citizen. Second, Dickie needed to obtain an export license. Next, she was required to obtain CAA approval for the installation of an additional gas tank, and once that was obtained, 
a CAA engineer would need to come from New York to inspect the installation. And finally, Dickie needed to obtain a certificate of airworthiness for her plane. Basically, lots of hoops to jump through. As Dickie worked to meet all of these CAA requirements, a new problem arose. That is that Jack Ellis' wife had arrived in Toronto from England, so he decided it was time to jump ship. And that left Dickie once again without a navigator. Luckily, her first navigator, Michael Townsend, had recently completed his studies at Cambridge, and he was willing to fly to Buffalo and rejoin Dickie on her quest to become the first woman to pilot a plane around the world. Quote, He came out to meet me, which was pretty big of him because he flew by commercial airlines, and that cost a lot. An anonymous benefactor provided Dickie with the $300 that she needed to pay off the fines that were levied on her for violation of federal regulations. She was finally able to resume flying on July 9th. Her first stop would be in Montreal, where she was once again grounded because her airplane was considered experimental and it was not permitted to fly over open water in Canada. So she hopped right back across the border and landed in Burlington, Vermont. But they refused her admission into the country because her passport wasn't in order. Dickie really had no choice but to fly back to Montreal. It wouldn't be until August 1st, you know, after this entire legal mess was cleared up, that she'd be able to clear customs in Burlington and fly to Bangor, Maine. After two months of basically going nowhere, it finally seemed like she'd be home soon. From Bangor, she flew to Goose Bay in Labrador, Canada, and I'm sure you're going to be surprised by this, she encountered more problems. Once again, Canadian authorities refused to allow Dickie to fly her plane over the Atlantic Ocean. She told the press, quote, The Canadian government refused to let me fly over their territory any longer. She continued, Department of Transport officials told me to go home and look after my baby. They said it would cost too much to start a search for me when I got lost. On August 12th, the Royal Canadian Air Force sent one of its Lancaster bombers from Greenwood, Nova Scotia, to escort Dickey's plane back to Bangor, Maine. Then, at 7.50 a.m., Dickey piloted her plane down the runway, and once she had gained enough altitude the escort plane joined up with her. Well, not long into their flight, Dickie attempted to give the RAF plane the slip. She suddenly swung the plane's nose around and she changed course. Instead of heading for Maine, Dickie was now flying out over the Atlantic Ocean. And for the next six and a half hours, that bomber stayed right with her until she successfully landed her single-engine plane at Bluey West 1, which is a United States air base located in southern Greenland. She was now outside of Canadian jurisdiction, so the RAF bomber, you know, they couldn't do anything about it. It simply refueled and returned to the Canadian mainland. Five days later, on August 17th, a U.S. Air Force B-17 escorted Dickey on a seven-hour flight from Greenland to Iceland. She landed the plane successfully, and she was almost home, hard to believe. Her husband, Norman, who had been taking care of their daughter, Anna, for the past year, stated, quote, I shall be very glad to see Dickie, but I shall be doubly glad to let her feed and bathe the baby. I'm tired of playing mother. 
he added. I am very proud of my wife. She is full of pep and very brave, and I want her to finish this flight because it means so much to her. I fell in love with Dickie when she was 17, and even then she was talking about this trip. After being held up in Iceland by bad weather, she took off on August 19th of 1949 and landed back on European soil for refueling at Prestwick, Scotland. After going through customs and an inspection of the plane, she landed at Croydon Airport in London, making Richarda Morrow Tate the first woman to ever pilot an airplane around the world. It had taken her one year and one day to complete the flight, so she definitely wasn't setting any kind of speed record here. As soon as she stepped out of the cockpit, her husband presented her with a bouquet of gladioli, and the two embraced lovingly as the photographers snapped their pictures. She stated, quote, No woman had ever flown around the world, and I wanted to show what an ordinary housewife could do. Dickie was uncertain what this flight around the world had cost, but her husband estimated it at $12,000, which is nearly $225,000 today. While Dickie was technically required to return the airplane to the United States, she never did so. Instead, she sold the plane to her Cambridge Flying Club, and they never used it. Instead, they scrapped it in 1952. Yet the story's not quite over. You see, Dickie had acquired two mementos while she was on the trip. The first was a tattoo that she had inked while she was in the United States. But the second was even more surprising. She hadn't seen her husband in more than a year, but she was pregnant. The father just happened to be her navigator, Michael Townsend. She told the press, quote, We were to be away for six weeks. We reached Calcutta on the 18th day, and we were stuck there for six weeks. It was there that Michael started being beastly to me. Their baby Giles would be born eight months after Dickie's return to England. Then, on June 10th of 1950, Norman Morrow Tate filed for divorce, and soon Dickie was living off of public assistance. Quote, I have an electric sewing machine. I make things for the neighbor's kids for a few odd shillings. As for domesticity, I'll meet any housewife with a cooker or a sweeper or down on my knees even and show her as good as she can give. On February 2nd of 1951, the divorce was granted, and the court ruled that Dickie would be responsible for the care and control of both her son Giles and their daughter Anna. Yet custody of the children was awarded to Norman Morrow Tate. What that meant was that while Dickie would raise the children, her ex-husband had the final say in all decision-making. Seven weeks later, on March 24th of 1951, Dickie would marry Michael Townsend. They'd remain married until her death from an incurable blood disease on December 17th of 1982. Dickie received very little acclaim for what she had done, and her accomplishment is just a footnote to flying history today. Now, some have attributed this lack of recognition to her scandalous affair with Michael Townsend because that grabbed bigger headlines than her round-the-world trip ever did. So I'll leave you with one final quote from Dickie. Quote, I had more trouble on the ground than I ever had in the air. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. 
Flying's the way to travel, and the way to fly is TWA, Transworld Airlines. Presenting Cary Grant and Betsy Drake as Mr. and Mrs. Blanding in a new series based on Eric Hodgins' best-selling novel, Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House and Blanding's Way. Did you know that TWA flies the world's largest fleet of constellations and offers luxury constellation service all the way from San Francisco to Bombay, India? You love to fly high up in the sky. You ride the airways, star-reached airways. Smoother and swifter, flying's the way. And the best way to fly, T-W-A. Mr. and Mrs. Blandings was a weekly radio series that ran on the NBC network and starred, as you just heard, the legendary Cary Grant and his then third wife, Betsy Drake. The show premiered on January 21st of 1951, but it never made it through to the 1952 season. This particular episode was titled Selling the House, and it was broadcast on March 8th of 1951. The show was based on Eric Hodgson's 1946 bestseller, Mr. Blanding Builds His Dream House. You know, it's one of those everything goes wrong while building the house type stories. Kind of like Tom Hanks' movie The Money Pit, if you've ever seen that. The book was then turned into a very successful movie of the same name, which just happened to star Cary Grant, plus Myrna Loy and Melvin Douglas. As to why Cary Grant agreed to do this radio series, you know, he's kind of a big Hollywood movie star, that's unknown but some have attributed to the fact that this is kind of a period where he's going through a slump in his career. As for TWA, the story is quite lengthy, so here are just a few highlights. On July 16th of 1930, Transcontinental Air Transport and Western Air Express, along with several other lesser airlines, they merged to form Transcontinental and Western Air, or T and WA for short. TNWA offered one of the first all-plane scheduled coast-to-coast routes across the United States. And while one can find many flights today that can make this trip in about six hours, it took 36 hours in the pre-jet age, although that did include a layover in Kansas City, Missouri. Between 1939 and 1940, Howard Hughes, you know, once the richest man on earth, he purchased enough stock in TNWA to have a controlling share in the company. He would own the company for the next 25 years. And while they had used the TWA name informally for quite some time, it was on May 17, 1950, that the company officially changed its name to TWA, Trans World Airlines. Now, it's difficult to say exactly what did TWA in, but there are two factors that certainly played a big part in his demise. First, there was the 1978 Airline Deregulation Act here in the United States that increased competition and, of course, lowered the cost of flights. Of course, that made it much harder for airlines to be profitable. Second was Carl Icahn, you know, the famed corporate raider. He purchased the airline operation of the company and later took it private in September of 1988. 
Well, in doing so, Icon walked away with a personal profit of $469 million, but that left TWA with $540 million in debt. Well, the company would never recover financially, and it went through three separate bankruptcies. TWA flew its last flight on December 1st of 2001 from Kansas City to St. Louis. TWA then ceased to exist, and it was absorbed by American Airlines. So here's a question for you. Can you name the largest building in the world by volume? Now, if you can't try to figure out why such a large building may be needed, and that may actually lead you to the answer. Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. In other news, here are three stories that all have something to do with transportation of some sort. 
The first documented blue law within the state of Pennsylvania, which of course placed restrictions on Sunday activity, was passed in 1779. Further restrictions were put into place in 1794, quote, for the prevention of vice and immorality and of unlawful gaming and to restrain disorderly sports and dissipation. The law strictly forbid, quote, any worldly employment or business whatsoever on the Lord's Day, commonly called Sunday, works of necessity and charity only accepted. This included, quote, any unlawful game, hunting, shooting, sport, or diversion whatsoever. Of course, the times changed and there were challenges to the law, especially as more modern forms of transportation came about. In particular, a new situation arose in 1919. That's when members of a Sunday Observance Association, they filed charges against Lieutenant John C. Howard for carrying passengers in an airplane on the Sabbath. On October 25th, Philadelphia City Solicitor John P. Connolly offered up his opinion on the matter. He stated, quote, I cannot see how travel in the air on Sunday is calculated to interfere with the rest, quiet, and right of citizenship to worship any more than travel by trolley cars, taxi cabs, hired carriages, or automobiles. He added, quote, Travel by streetcars, by steam railways, by hired cabs, and in these later days, by taxi cabs or other vehicles, both upon land and water, and for pleasure or necessity, has become universal, and has come to be tacitly, if not explicitly, regarded as within the exceptions of the Act of 1794. A decision was handed down on November 6 by an unnamed police magistrate, who had pondered over the violation for 10 days and concluded that flying an airplane on Sunday in no way violates the Pennsylvania Blue Laws. He said, quote, Birds fly on Sunday, and I therefore do not see how the law is violated by a birdman who runs an air taxi cab on the Sabbath. Our next story is dated August 30th of 1955, in which a pilotless airplane circled Sydney, Australia, and its suburbs for nearly three hours. Now, today we live in a time of remote control airplanes, but that was not why this plane was flying around without a pilot. You see, 30-year-old trainee pilot Anthony Thrower was practicing his takeoffs and landings at the Bankstown Aerodrome when suddenly, quote, The motor went dead when I was 10 feet over the runway. I got down safely and applied the brakes. I decided to start the Oster by myself. That's when he swung the propeller around to start the engine. But as soon as the engine turned over, the brakes on the airplane failed, and it just took off to the sky without him aboard. Quote, I tried to hold it by a strut, but I couldn't make it, and away she went. So he began to run toward the control tower in an effort to alert them as the plane flew in the opposite direction. And then, quote, I looked over my shoulder and got a terrific fright. The plane had turned right around and was chasing me. Thrower was unharmed, and eventually the plane climbed to an altitude of 10,000 feet or 3 kilometers before it leveled off. Royal Australian Air Force jets were called in to pursue the runaway plane, but they were unable to bring it down. Eventually, the wind pushed the plane out toward the sea, where two Australian Navy Sea Furies shot it down. Lastly, on July 8th of 1961... 
The Pleasant Lake Lions Club in Indiana held their annual Submarine Rodeo Scuba Competition. Each year this event attracted several thousand enthusiastic fans who wanted to watch the various diving events that were scheduled. Some of the contests included the weight carry, the recovery dive contest, and a compass course event. But the highlight of this event was the last contest of the day. It was a diving contest that involved homemade midget submarines. These various crafts have been built from old aircraft parts, boilers, steam fittings, and so on. And contestants in the contest came from great distances to compete. And basically the divers had to use all their diving skills to capture one of these elusive submarines. Now, according to the article, the first submarine rodeo was held in 1959 right there at Pleasant Lake. And the contest did continue throughout the mid-1960s, but it's unclear why they stopped holding it. One thing that was reported is that one of the big problems with these homemade submarines was that Lloyds of London refused to insure any of them. So earlier in the podcast, I'd asked you about the largest building in the world by volume. Did you know the answer? Well, it turns out it's the Boeing Airplane Assembly Facility in Everett, Washington. It sits at the edge of Payne Field, which was used as an Air Force base during World War II. The building was specifically built for the production of 747 airplanes, and it opened on May 1st of 1967. And the reason the factory was built there was that they needed a very, very long runway, and Payne Field could provide that. The plant has been expanded several times since. It covers 98.7 acres and it has a volume of, you ready for these numbers? 472,370,319 cubic feet, or for those in the metric system, 13,385,378 meters cubed. And it sits on a 780 acre parcel that Boeing had purchased north of the then little-used airport. The factory is so large that it theoretically could hold all of Disneyland and still have 12 acres to spare. It's so large that it has its own fire department, medical clinic, dry cleaners, and even a bank. A little curiosity is they have approximately 500 tricycles that allow people to move around the facility more quickly. Now you'd think since they're in the aviation business, they'd have a faster way to move around the facility. I don't know about you, but tricycles seem a bit slow to me. So if I were ever to visit the factory, and I know they give tours, I would quickly find that suggestion box and let them know what they really should be doing. They should be providing each of their employees with their own jetpack. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. Just a reminder that my new book, which is called The Flipside History, is currently available. And if you enjoy listening to the stories that I include in this podcast, I highly encourage you to get a copy of the book. It is also available as an audiobook, but as I pointed out before, I did not do the narration. Be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at UselessInfoCast, and you'll be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Again, the handle is at UselessInfoCast. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there, and it should pop up. Make sure you subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast, and you can do so through whichever podcast platform you use, whether that be Amazon Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeart, Spotify, 
uh, tune in, and so on. Anyway, thanks for listening. I hope you tune in the next time. Take care, everyone. Bye.